So, good morning, everyone. The title of this first talk for this session, this uh, two-day session, is called Dropping Below the Surface. Uh, what I mean by the surface is that uh, we all know what it's like in our everyday life, and most people now in Sydney wandering around in their everyday life um, are caught up in um, thinking a lot, um, imagining things, uh, talk, um, caught up in conceptual talk, like talking, all, all talking is conceptual, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain, um, caught up in fear and aggression, working at somewhere a lot behind the scene somewhere. Uh, and that is kind of like the surface level of the way that human beings often live their life. And when you reflect on it, um, what we're doing taking two days out of our life um, on a weekend just to sit is actually quite a, a very radical thing to do, really, when you reflect on it. And uh, it's not what human beings normally do. They're just caught up in the, in the surface level of their chattering mind going on and on. Um, you know, there's probably very, out of a city of four or five million, there's probably a few other people around doing retreats in Sydney somewhere, but it's, it's not, it, people aren't clamouring to get into retreats. No, yeah. um, for all the talk about mindfulness training and everything, no, not a lot of people are clamouring to, to do it. Uh-huh. Um, and, but what happens when you, when you do a session, when you even do half an hour of sitting, we all have the experience of dropping below that chattering mind and settled into something deeper and being more present and embodied. You know, from the disembodied mind into the embodied presence is what we experience to one degree or another. And if you do that for long enough, if you do it over months and years, you know, or even a lifetime, um, and you and you you're constantly dropping below that that surface level of chatter, um, you realise more and more that the, the, the human life that, you, that you're a part of, you know, the country you're part of, the politics, the, the neighbourhood, the community, the family and everything, it is so much of it is, is based on what I refer to as a collective delusion. It's a collective delusion, and collective delusions are really powerful because if not just you believe it, but everyone else believes that something is true, then it, it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, many centuries ago, um, people really believed there was a heaven and hell. That was their truth. And everyone else, their neighbours believed it, and your mother and your father believed it, so it was true. Mm-hmm. People would think that was silly mostly these days, not everyone, but... Most people would think that that's a delusion when you look back on it. Um, and it's very easy to see the, the collective delusions that people were caught up in in years gone by or in other cultures. It's harder to see the collective delusions that our culture and our current times is, is caught up in as well. That's the harder part of it. But to go beyond collective delusions of... Um, 
heaven and hell. I mean, really, I also think that the some of the Buddhist and Asian views of reincarnation as a collective delusion as well. You know, there's no substance to believing in it, but everyone just thinks it's true, so it's true. And um, outside of religions, see, religion's not the only religion. There's many different religions. Um, and uh, if you look back in history, like one of the most um, successful empires was the Roman Empire. And so everyone believed in the, in the Roman Empire, do you know, and the Roman eagle becomes the symbol of, that everyone follows and it embodies. And all these people collectively work towards these goals, do you know, to expanding Rome or whatever it might be, or the British Empire, whatever it might be. Everyone's caught up in a collective delusion. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, it's not only religions which religions, if you really f reflect on it, like in Australian politics, for instance, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party are religions. You know, they're things that people just believe in to be true and it's very tribal and, and if you if you around the tribe more you, you get absorbed more into the particular view that it is. Um, but they're all just constructed realities. You know, they may be they may be things we value like um, a fair go or individual liberty and things like that. But they're all human constructions. And they're all part of what we refer to in, in Zen as the relative world. Anything which is built out of conceptual construction of comparison and analysis and so on is the relative world. And that's, in a sense, the relative world is, the, is that surface level that we're, we're living at. It does serve a purpose. I'm not saying it's all bad. It serves a purpose. I mean, religions organise people. You know, businesses organise people. Um, time is a construction, you know, but it's a useful one. Right? Even the self, you know, a sense of a self and a social self, that's a construction, but it's a useful one too. You know? It's not just crazy, you know, it helps us organise ourselves. Time helps us organise ourselves. So I'm not saying all these things are inherently bad, but they're just built on constructions in the human mind. And our Zen practice is to recognise that, right? but we're actually, what we're actually trying to do is to drop below that into what we would call um, the absolute world. Now, the abs absolute as a term seems like a rather highfalutin term, doesn't it? There's some, some absolute truth up there. But that's not what it's meant in Zen. It's just simply the absolute is, is the uh, is suchness, like the just thisness of momentariness. That's what the absolute is. Before any kind of conceptual construction is laid over the top of it. It's why the Heart Sutra, you know, the the main sutra that we recite in Zen is about seeing through all constructions, you know, of the mind, all constructions of the mind. Now, one of the reasons I think people aren't clamouring over the walls to do Zen retreats is that 
sometimes people get a glimmer into this surface um, ima imagination and, and, they're, and they're, they're rather disturbed by it. Um, and, and they're disturbed by um, dropping into something like the here and now and suchness and um, all of that other surface chatter and clatter seem like, seem like a whole lot of nonsense. And what does it mean? Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm particularly focusing on this as a theme in this talk is because I can, there's a theme that's emerging um, from uh, often things uh, a lot of you tell me, like in Dyson, and things that emerge from uh, what people tell me in my individual counselling sessions, well, who are Buddhist people. The theme is um, around people who've been fairly committed to Dharma practice for some time going, what's the point of doing my job? You know, like, I, I don't feel like I've got any ambition anymore. Um, what, what, what's the point of doing it? It's like they're, they're a bit disconcerted about how um, this rush towards progress, you know, and getting on in life and ambition just doesn't seem to have the same uh, attraction that it had before. Um, and they become a bit sort of concerned about about how they how they can integrate that in their in their Zen practice. But what I want to say first of all is that if you drop below the surface of human conceptual construction, whatever that might be, it's not automatically depressing. Um, a lot of writers, you know, through <coughs> history of kind of like existentialist writers in particular. Kind of think you you drop drop out of that collective delusion, and you drop into this kind of nihilistic way of viewing the world. But from a Zen point of view, that's just, the nihilistic view of looking at the world is just another construction. It's not actually true emptiness. It looks like emptiness, but it's just another construction. It's just another overlay on life. And um, to clarify that a little bit more. Um, one of my favourite authors at the moment that I've been speaking of, Neil Gunn, the Scottish um, novelist, um, reading his autobiography at the moment, and he's, uh, he said that he, he was bemused and a bit disappointed um, that other contemporary writers of his time um, got all the sort of um, best literary awards and so on because they talked about doom and gloom all the time. Uh -huh. And and that's what was the flag, that was the um, that was the uh, preferred way of looking at the world um, in the in the time that he was growing up in the First World War and Second World War um, and all of the atrocities that happened then. So people kind of had this um, perverse attachment to the darkness of of human experience. But um, Neil Gunn. Um, by his own accounts and by the, you know, the comments of the people who are around him and as you see in his novels, was actually a very happy man. He was a naturally very happy person. And, uh, and what you... And he, he describes um, 
not just once, but sort of frequent experiences of, of, in, of what we would call Zen insight through his life. He actually describes the specific um, occasions when they occurred, when you're sitting on a rock eating nuts in the forest or something like that. And uh, here's an example, and it's an example of what happens through our Zen practice. You drop out of that collective delusion, you do not automatically drop into depression or darkness. Mm -hmm. And Neil Gunn would be an example of someone that that didn't occur to. Um, if, it's a, if it is a, a clear insight experience, it's not automatically depressing, it's actually joyful, you know, and it's uplifting to, to come back to the, the basics of what is, you know, and, and to see the clarity and the joy and the mystery of life and to live that. Um, it's not a, not a negative experience at all. But the vast majority of people at some level are disconcerted by it. And you have to keep practicing until you, if, if you are disconcerted, you need to keep practicing until you drop below that, that sense of being disconcerted, that you're losing all your bearings. And you, you'll find, you just find joy in being grounded. And not being swept along with um, ideas all the time. Now, one of the greatest delusions, collective delusions, of our culture and Western cultures and so on, is the idea of progress. We're all caught up in progress. And it's so all, all very important that politically and economically and personally, and that we're, we're progressing towards something. You know, all about, what are we progressing towards? Can someone tell me? Death. Really? <laughs> um, it's like the mantra of, of Western civilization. It's like the Christian version, only it's, it's a different variation on it. But you could say that the mantra of the, the Christian version of it was onwards and upwards, right, to heaven. Um, but it's like the mantra of our, our Western cultures, onwards and upwards towards progress. That's like we worship progress. If we're not making progress, well, mm, that's, that's terrible. We're falling back. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to see that um, because we're all caught up in it. But in a sense, the more you do Zen practice, the more you drop out of that conventional way of thinking, you see these things far more clearly of how, just how much, it's easy to see, like I said, it's easy to see the collective delusions of people centuries ago or other cultures. It's really hard to see the collective delusion of your own culture. But you do Zazen long enough and, and it becomes clearer and clearer how much we're all caught up in this idea of progressing towards something. If the mantra of um, of our modern contemporary life is onwards and upwards, then the Zen mantra, as hippie sounding as it might sound, is be here now. So my question is, how do you reconcile be here now with onwards and upwards? How do you reconcile being a Zen partner and and touching base with the way life just is, with how with getting on in life, you know, and needing to 
earn an income, you know, and maybe have a family and have children and look after them and have the resources and pay off a mortgage. Do you know, where do you, where do you get the motivation out of be here now <laughs> to do all of that, right? But that's the challenge and it can be done. And if I put it in more philosophical terms, do you know that the absolute and the relative, that we, the absolute world and the relative world that we talk about in Zen are not two, right? They're, they're one and the same thing. And it is our aspiration as Zen practitioners not just to live in the absolute, but you have to integrate the absolute with the relative. You have to, abs- you have to integrate the be here now with progress. Mm-hmm. And in the ten ox herding pictures of Zen, uh, which sort of give a, a pictorial progress of practice, um, in the end picture, it's the, the awakened hermit coming back from the mountain and entering the village with bliss-bestowing hands. Do you know? And, he, and he's very social. He, he hangs out with the, with um, do you know all the poor people and the unemployed and the prostitutes and do you know the drunk people. He, he doesn't. He's outside of, he's outside of the culture in a way, but he immerses himself in it. It doesn't just sit on the on the, the mountain top forever. That's not the Zen ideal. So even <coughs> in our practice, it's not just to stay in this hippie be here now experience. It's actually to integrate that experience into everyday life. But it's very different when you do, and it's it's possible to um, be successful in whatever you do in your work or career or relationships, it's possible to do that and do a Zen practice at the same time. But it seems to come from from a more grounded and less stressful and anxious or aggressive place. Mm -hmm. You can still do it. Um, Years ago, when um, I was studying Hawaii with Robert Aitken Roshi, uh, his teacher, Yamada Roshi, came over from Japan um, to teach a, at a session. And I remember um, at one of his talks, he said that, and him having, um, you know, a whole uh, living in a, in a Zen culture as he did, you know, in, in, with centuries of experience, said that if people do um, uh, Zen practice, you know, fairly consistently. Um, generally speaking, um, that group of people will become much more successful in their life, whatever they do, um, uh, rather than not. And and there are a lot of people in, in conventional terms who've studied Zen who are who are successful people. It seems to have that impact on people. But the motivation is is different. It's not. And if I could talk maybe from my own experience. Um, I started Zen practice when I was about 24 or 25 and it was sort of running parallel with a career as a psychologist and um, and I, I really didn't have an ambition outside of just wanting to be a good psychologist. I like, I like I wanted to know my trade really well and be really good at it but I didn't really have any ambition beyond that. 
Um, but I did it for years, and then people said to me, oh, you, maybe you should go for that job. So I'd go for that job and I'd get it. Or maybe you should go for that job and I'd get it. So I really didn't have an ambition to climb the ladder, um, but I ended up becoming a clinical director of a, of a counselling organisation. And then I was an acting executive officer for a while, and people were sounding me out whether I wanted to do it, but I didn't really want to do it. I still wanted just to be a good psychologist. Right? But if you, if, you, if you bring your practice to doing whatever you do as well as you can and mindfully as well, and not just to the task, but if you bring your Zen practice to um, supporting the people around you in your team or you work with or your colleagues and you're interested in them as well as just your own personal ambition, um, people will want you to be in a position of leadership. It'll, it'll, it's not because you're trying to 